Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 11th, 2022. This week we've been, it's not the right word, celebrating, marking the first year anniversary of the U.S. debacle in Afghanistan, a dreadful retreat, a shame on America, perpetual stain. But we have a more pleasant anniversary to celebrate today. About almost exactly a year ago, I had my old friend, if I can call him a friend, but everyone's my friend, really, especially on the internet, Brad Feld, a distinguished venture capitalist and writer who was on the show talking about his new book at that time, The uh, the Startup Community Way. Brad is a prolific writer, um, and he has a new edition of an old book, Startup, uh, Startup Boards, A Field Guide to Building and Leading an Effective Board of Directors. As I said, he's prolific. He's the, he's the Nietzsche of the venture capital community. He's even written a book called Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche. He's got six or eight books, including that weekly Nietzsche, Startup Life, which he wrote with his partner, Amy Batchelor, about the emotional ups and downs of what it's like to be a startup entrepreneur, and Do More Faster, which he must have read for himself because he certainly does a lot faster because all this writing isn't his day job. He's actually a founding partner at the Foundry investment firm based in Boulder, Colorado. So, uh, Brad, before we start talking about your boards, your new edition of the boards book, two questions. I mean, firstly, how do you do all this writing as well as doing your day job? And secondly, what, what's the big deal for you about writing? You seem to be very enthusiastic about it. Uh, well, I am able to do all this because I don't have kids. So <laughs> if you, know, you think about the amount of time uh, in one's life, uh, you know, having and raising kids takes, it's a lot. And Amy and I consciously early in our, we've been together over 30 years, but early in our relationship, uh, we chose not to have kids. So, um, you know, among other things, uh, I suppose you could fill up all that time uh, with the same old work, uh, but I've chosen- uh, Do you regret to- that? I mean, I've got kids. They're a pain in the neck. You're lucky not to have them. <laughs> well, I don't regret it at all because it was a conscious choice. Um, and I have no judgment on others. Like some people love to have kids and some people choose not to have kids and some people have kids and aren't happy with it. And in the case of Amy and I, we, you know, we talked about it every year for the first five years of our relationship and we did it on our anniversary. And I think after five years, we hadn't spent more than one minute each year talking about it. So it was pretty clear that neither of us wanted to have kids. Um, the why do I write question is, uh, is one I enjoy uh, getting because uh, I started writing uh, a long time ago, mostly to figure things out. And so my motivation for writing was mostly about learning at some point, And I think this was around 2004. Yeah, it was 2004. I started writing a blog when, you know, kind of before blogging became a big thing and before everybody had a public writing thing that they were doing. Um, but there were a couple of, of venture capitalists, myself, Fred Wilson and David Hornick, um, who, you know, started writing about entrepreneurship and venture capital uh, and investing in public. And for me, uh, 
again, my motivation in a very early blog, I wrote, you know, I'm doing this for me. I'm not doing this for anybody else. I don't know whether, you know, and I'm not sure I care whether one person reads this or 10 people read it or a hundred people read it. And yeah, there's some ego dynamic around tracking how many people are reading it. And especially with all the intensity around promoting oneself, uh, I think I would be uh, full of shit to not say that there was some, you know, sort of uh, positive energy feedback loop on the fact that other people were finding what I was writing useful. But I did it day in and day out, mostly to figure things out. And then at some point, I realized that I was becoming a better writer the more I wrote. And not surprising, and anybody who's, who's a, you know, a longtime writer will say that. And so once it became a craft, I shifted from writing short form, and I still write plenty of short form, blog posts, articles, things like that, but, but trying to write books. And one of the things I learned with the first book I wrote, which was uh, Do More Faster, which I did with David Cohen, who's co-founder of Techstars with me, is it is really challenging to write a book. It's even more challenging to write a good book. And it's even more challenging to write a good, useful book. And uh, I view that as one of the things that as having now done a bunch of books, I feel like, you know, uh, I've gotten enough positive feedback that my books are at least uh, useful. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully in some cases, people view them as both good and useful. But it's, it's really that trajectory. That's the motivation. How would you compare writing a book and doing a startup? They're totally different things. Although the analogy I've used for many years, I, my first company, I wrote, uh, I wrote software myself, right? So we started off, the business initially was just me, and then I added a partner. And for the first three or four years of the business, I wrote a bunch of code. And then eventually I was just running the business and, and couldn't write code anymore. Um, I loved programming. I loved writing code. And I loved working on product. Now, I'm separating this from the company now, and I'll come back to the company in a sec. Um, I have over the years, I stopped writing code commercially in the early 1990s. And every couple of years, I'll learn a new programming language. And what I, uh, I never really have any mastery over anything because I don't spend enough time doing things in production, right? It's just playing around with something and learning the syntax and uh, learning the new tools and figuring out all of a sudden how everybody's doing things today versus how they were doing things before and da 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 da. What I what I found on the on the programming side of it again which I really enjoy the the energy I had very difficult time getting up the learning curve enough with all the other work that I do to feel like I could actually do anything that I produced anything that became usable. Um, writing a book is very analogous in some ways to that except for uh, the the language doesn't change, right? I always write in English and yeah, I become better at syntax and I become better at organizing uh, my thinking in the same way that if you program in the same programming language, you get better at writing that code uh, and you become more efficient and you learn lots of, you know, build on top of things that you built on before, but the, the language doesn't change. And then the other is that the tools don't change. So every time I sit down to write a book, I don't have to learn an entirely new editing environment. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I don't have to learn an entire, entirely new production environment, um, although I've, I've started to do some things around that because I think the historical publishing industry and the production environment uh, that's, that's there is, is very tedious. Um, uh, and, and really part of the reason it's tedious is because it hasn't changed. But I think it's more analogous to that. In creating a company, 
um, the book would be just one project uh, within all of the different activities of the company. So it would be more like a segment in the product development part of the business where the work is similar, but you're not cutting across all the different things that have to happen in the company, but yet you're sort of in one narrow piece. Now, it is true that if you write a book and you want the book to be commercially successful, um, the author is now the one that has to generate all of the activity uh, around it and whatever the promotion is, you know, writing about it, being on podcasts, you know, there's a bunch of work there that for 99%, 99.9% of successful books, you know, that's no longer something the publisher is really doing. That's something the author is doing. Um, but for someone like me, um, I'm less focused on the book being a quote commercial success uh, by whatever, you know, financial metrics somebody cares about and more interested in having an impact on people who it's relevant to. So I'm much more interested in just, you know, it's a book about boards. I want people who care about boards of directors to get exposed to it and to care about it. And if you're interested in entrepreneurship or you're interested in building things, it's going to be relevant to you. I'm much more interested in that than trying to get, you know, a placement on the New York Times bestseller list or, you know, have it be something that I can then build a consulting practice around, right? So it's it's that that thing that I'm monetizing. So in that sense, a lot of the activity that you would equate to building a company uh, is not part of my own motivation. But for, and I'll just, I'll end with an example, for an author whose uh, livelihood uh, is based on the concepts in the book she writes and the consulting business that comes from that book um, and the speaking activity and engagement that comes from that book, that's most definitely closer to building a company, although one that doesn't have a particularly large staff and one that doesn't really scale beyond what that person is doing. Uh, so let's, let's talk about uh, startup boards. Um, you say that it, when, when the first edition was, um, uh, first edition came out, uh, it was a good book, but you weren't particularly proud of it because it didn't feel like your best writing. You've worked really hard on this edition. Why is the second edition better? What did you, what have you written that makes it a better work? Yeah, a couple of things. One is um, in that first edition, which came out in 2013, and was pretty unique because there really wasn't a layperson's book about board of directors. There was one book that sort of talked about it in a legal sense, but it was it was kind of impenetrable, and I don't think that useful. Um, at the same time that I wrote that book. Uh, uh, the the last half of of the of the effort, um, I had a depressive episode. Uh, I was pretty public about it at that time because mental health has become something that I care about and I'm focused on in the context of eliminating the stigma around it. And I, I just forced myself to get the book done versus allow myself to sort of be in the work and enjoy the work and the process. At some point, it's like I, just a thing I had to get done. Um, another thing which we really did much better in this book, the first book, when I reflected on it after it was out, to get into the book, it had a pretty, a pretty steep wall to climb. The first 50 or 100 pages, um, you know, it was, it was, there was some accessible stuff at the very beginning, but then there was a big chunk uh, of pages that was kind of too technical, uh, stiff. The writing wasn't really uh, full of examples. It wasn't playful. It didn't lead you along. And a book like this, 
you know, what, what, uh, what I've learned as I've written more is you don't want a book to put up a big wall in front of the reader early on. Um, you want to let them get engaged in the book. So some of the harder stuff that you're talking about are things that might be, you know, less stimulating or you want to get it in there because it's important, but it's just hard to make it exciting, especially, you know, in a book about boards of directors, you want to let people get into it more. So we had this wall that was too high, uh, too early. What are uh, the biggest challenges, Brad, for entrepreneurs in terms of startup boards? My sense as both a former startup entrepreneur, as someone who's seen boards up front, my wife's on several boards, it seems to me as if there's too much still, even on startup boards, there's too much selling. People aren't honest enough. So what are the challenges about putting a board together? Why waste your time? Why invest so much time when a startup entrepreneur is already incredibly busy with a million other things? Yeah, well, I, I think the thing you point out, which is that the the entrepreneur, the founders uh, or the leaders are selling to their board is a tragic, complete and total misuse of the board. Um, the board's already there. And, you know, my view of, of a startup board specifically is that I only really want to make one decision about the company, which is whether or not I support the CEO. If I support her, it's my job to do everything I know how to do to help her be successful. And if I don't support her, it's my job to do something about it, which doesn't mean fire her, but try to get back to the place where I support her. If you use that frame of reference, um, the board can be a very powerful and productive team to help you as the leader of the company be successful and the business to be successful. And there's lots of different aspects of that. But the fundamental reason to have a board as a startup is that you get the benefit of another team of really experienced people uh, helping you as the leader build a successful business. One of the challenges I think for a lot of entrepreneurs is I've been on lots of boards. Some boards I've been on have been extraordinary and some have been horrible. Most of them are somewhere in between. Uh, same thing with individual board members. There's some extraordinary individual board members. There's some tragically awful board members, but most are in between. And so one of the challenges is that like your leadership team, as a CEO, you build a leadership team. You have to put energy into your leadership team, not just the individuals, but the team as a whole to make it a, an effective functioning team that can help you build the business. And, you know, that's your job as a CEO. So the, the way you presented it, you you said your only purpose on the board is to determine whether or not the CEO is any good if they are to... No, no, I didn't say purpose. I didn't say purpose. I said the only decision I want to make. I have a lot of other roles on that board. I've got governance roles. There's a lot of things a CEO might ask me to do as a board member in the governance dynamic, especially around any sort of transactional activity, whether it's an investment or buying or selling a company, uh, I tend to have plenty of responsibilities and things to do. So I, I want to distinguish that. It's not responsibility, it's decision. But coming back to that, isn't, the, isn't then a CEO going to, and a CEO is usually the founder of a startup, aren't they going to go into this almost defensively thinking, oh my God, guys like Brad are going to be determining whether I'm any good at this and judging me. Well, I think that's a historical cliche that causes a lot of founders not to want to have boards. Um, and what ends up happening as companies raise money is if a founder has that frame of reference, 
they're probably going to end up with a board anyway, and it's going to be a board that's an investor-heavy board versus a board that's a balanced board between investors and independent directors. And the more the CEO is trying to either you know distance from the actual board or not engage the board as a team, the more challenge the uh, the board members themselves and the CEO are going to have around that dynamic. Um, I, I've had the exact opposite experience with many entrepreneurs where the entrepreneurs uh, embrace from day one the involvement of the board members, whether those board members are investors or uh, independent directors. Those entrepreneurs have enough self-confidence to recognize that you know, they might not be ultimately the right CEO for the company at some point in time, um, but that if they build a trusted working relationship with their board members, that'll be a conversation, not a confrontation. And uh, I'll put it back in cliche land. Most board members don't show up thinking, okay, my first job is to judge the CEO and decide whether the CEO uh, is competent or not. Um, that happens after a period of time when the company doesn't perform or the CEO clearly has a series of missteps or the CEO, you know, obfuscates or lies to the board or, you know, per your earlier comment, the CEO and the leadership team are always in selling mode, you know, for some period of time that might hold up. But at some point, like if you're in selling mode and you don't deliver what you're selling, at some point, somebody's going to call you out on it. And if you uh, if you haven't built a working relationship with that set of people, um, you know, it's but when that happens, it's very hard to have constructive relationships, constru constructive discussions. Now, uh, an entrepreneur can say, well, I'm not going to raise any money from anybody and I own 100 percent of the company and therefore I don't want a board and I don't see the value of the board. That's fine. Um, what that particular CEO is missing is that the board probably can't fire him because he controls the company. And so really what they're doing in building the board is they're getting, as I said earlier, another team that can help them be successful. And I'm yet to meet anyone, entrepreneur or investor or outside board member that doesn't have weaknesses and that doesn't have uh, lots of situations where they can learn from other people who have experienced you know, lots of different things in the context of either their specific business as a CEO of their own company or uh, investor in lots of other companies. Brad, is there a big difference for you as a board member between being on the board as uh, a partner in Foundry and maybe having money in the company, being on the board as a private investor and simply being on the board as a, as a wise tech guy? Well, it's hard to answer it personally because right now the only boards I will sit on are boards that uh, Foundry is an investor in, and that's a you know that's a constraint uh, of our funds and the decision I made. Um, for me personally, uh, I try not to behave differently um, in those three scenarios, and I've been all three. I've been an independent director for companies. I've been a private investor, you know, with my own money and companies. I've been on the board, of course, plenty of boards. I've been a director as a venture investor. I I try hard not to behave differently. Um, however, there's no doubt that um, the different roles do feel different. Um, and, you know, in the context of me being a partner at a venture fund, the magnitude of money we have in the company is much greater than when I'm investing personally. 
I think most of the boards that I invest personally on, if I lost all the money I was an investor on those boards in, you know, it, it, it's not something desirable, but it wouldn't really affect my life. So there probably was less focus on uh, the investment dynamic. And then in situations where not, I'm, I'm an outside director, I can't think of any situation actually where I'm an outside director uh, in, in, you know, the last 20 something years where I didn't have some money in the company at some level. So I really can't separate between those two, but I, you know, there's no question that there's behavioral differences between those three cases. I I'm going to give another slice. I, I think a person can show up as a board member in all three cases similarly, and they just have to recognize as the board member, the different pressures they have uh, and I'll give a very specific example. Um, if I'm investing my own money in a company uh, and, uh, and I'm the, the investor or I'm an independent director, uh, legally and formally, I only have a fiduciary responsibility to the company and to all the shareholders in the company. And that's my primary legal fiduciary duty. If I'm a VC that is invested money from a fund in a company, my primary legal fiduciary is still to the company. However, I have a legal fiduciary also to my investors. And we have a, a good story in the book uh, and, and, and sets of examples around that challenge with VCs in the book. Matt tells a story. I remember the, the board meeting where it was a very, very challenging board meeting at his previous company, Return Path. I was in the middle of the financial crisis. So it was challenging on multiple dimensions. And uh, we came to the meeting and he gave everybody two baseball caps. I can't remember the colors. We talk about the colors in the book. He says, this, this baseball cap, I want you to wear when you're talking as a fiduciary to the board. And this baseball cap, I want you to wear when you're a fiduciary to your fund. And he didn't say, I need everybody to show up one way or the other. He says, I want to know when you're talking, which one you are. Now, the benefit of that in that meeting was it cleared the air. It, it took the whole sort of tension that existed between I'm an investor and I'm also on the board away. And we were able to talk pretty constructively and people changed hats. So the information that came out, you knew where somebody was coming from. Um, but I, I use that as an example, even as a fiduciary to the fund, whenever a venture capitalist on a board says, I have a fiduciary responsibility to my fund uh, and therefore my general response now is that that's bullshit. Yeah, you do. But you're here as a board member for the company. If you can't carry both of those in your head at the same time and the fiduciary to your fund is dominating, I think you should get out of the room right now. You should either get off the board or excuse yourself because you're not able to think about it from the perspective of what's best for the company. And right now, as we're trying to solve this problem or work through this issue, that's how you have to be thinking about it. Brad, when Speaking of wearing caps, some of us don't need to wear caps when it comes to our race or our gender. Huge debate endlessly in tech, particularly in Silicon Valley, about the racial and gendered makeup of boards. Do you think that's important? Is it something that founders should bear in mind, getting a nice mix, men and women, blacks and whites and browns? Hugely important. Uh, and uh, we talk about it in this book. You asked me earlier about one of the things I wasn't proud about in the in the first edition we have about 20 sidebars in the book where we have 
successful entrepreneurs or investors or board members talk about a specific topic from their experience. And I like to do that rather than try to weave it in as uh, uh, just quotes from people, because I like to hear, you know, from other people's experience as a reader. And I like to do that as a writer. Um, in that first book, um, all but uh, two of those sidebars were from men. Uh, and I think all of the sidebars were from white men, like all of the, the, the uh, those 18 that were from men. I think they were all white men. Uh, when we started working on this book, we talked to a couple of friends, a half dozen people and said, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Give us feedback on what you think about it. And we had in that we had three of the half dozen or so people we talked to were women. And all three women basically said some version of this book's not accessible to me. And uh, one of them said it very pointedly. They say a woman is not on the pages of this book until page 82. And uh, that in, in 20, and we wrote it in 2021, in 2021, 2022, that's not interesting to me. Um, and so just as an example of something that we worked hard on improving, not just women, but also uh, people of color being contributors to the book. Uh, as a board member, uh, personally, uh, if I go back in time, uh, I've I personally been very engaged around gender equity in computer science uh, and technology. Um, going back to 2005, I, I was the founding chair of an organization uh, started by an amazing woman named Lucy Sanders uh, called National Center for Women in Information Technology. Uh, it's, it's a large organization in the U.S. today. It probably has about a 15 to $20 million a year annual budget. Uh, and it's probably had the most impact of any organization in the U.S. on getting more girls and women involved in computer science. Right. So I, I learned a lot about gender equity in the context of computer science um, over I was I was uh, chair for a decade uh, and learned a ton from not just Lucy, but working with other board members and being engaged in actual real problems and trying to understand what was going on. And I don't remember the time frame, but it was 2015, 16, 17 in that in that window. Um uh, and probably was prompted by whenever the, the Me Too uh, phenomena occurred. So whatever that time frame was, was really uh, caused me to, to be deliberate about it. Um, I realized the vast majority of my boards that I was on, and I was on a dozen or so boards, um, had uh, only a few of them had a woman on the board. And uh, very few of them had a woman on the board. And um, I don't think at the time any of them had a person of color on the board. And I uh, made a deliberate decision at that time and, and told all the CEOs I worked with, I said, if, if we don't have at least one woman on the board uh, and a person of color on the board in a year, uh, I'm going to resign from the board to make room for uh, somebody to take a board seat uh, and, and put a person in, in that board seat. And I would say by the end of the year, I, I we, those boards and those companies almost accomplished that goal. There were a few that that had Brad, um, what's the over the last 10 years since the first edition of the book came out what's your sense of how effectively the tech community generally outside boards is cleaning up its act improving its act in terms of gendered equity and racial equity uh, there's been a many as you know you know this better than i do so much criticism of the white guy's control of tech. Has anything changed over the last 10 yeah, years? It's, broadly? It's, got, it's gotten a little better, but I categorize it as profoundly mediocre. Um, and What's I think more, would you give it a C minus? 
yeah, probably something in there. Um, that's profoundly mediocre would be a C or C minus. Uh, I, I think that in it, what's happened is uh, there has been meaningful change. Um, and the meaningful change, and I learned this from NC Witt, just takes a very long time to hit a tipping point where it's, you know, real change across the whole landscape. And, and there's lots of uh, resistance and pressures against that change by uh, peop incumbent people uh, in positions of power. And that's no different in tech than in any other aspects of our society. Um, I think one of the things that really is, is uh, maybe disappointing or frustrating in tech, whether it's from the inside or the outside looking at it, is <coughs> the mantra of tech often is we're going to make the world a better place. Like there's some uh, uh, ongoing statement about uh, from, from, you know, leaders, including very successful and, and very wealthy uh, tech leaders about how they want to improve uh, society. Uh, through what they're doing. And this is, in, in many of those cases, this is an area where that's not included in what improving society means, or it's really a deflection uh, from the reality of, of what they're doing. The other side of it, which I found to be, uh, in some cases, very optimistic and very powerful, but also hard, um, is there continues to be um, a lot of, I'll, I'll use a word that I like, uh, from a movie called Swordfish. I don't know if people know the John Travolta movie. Um, but at some point in the late in the movie, he uses the word misdirection. And I think it's just such a magnificent moment in the movie because you realize that so much of what he's been doing up to that point is a head fake on what he's actually trying to get done. And unfortunately, I think that's uh, woven into uh, the fabric of, of a lot of what people do uh, in the context of uh, of equity. The last is it's, it's, uh, as, as, you know, as a middle-aged white guy, I have to be, if I want to be effective, I'm a supporter of people of color or of women on this journey. I'm not the one fixing a broken problem with someone else. In other words, and I'll, I'll use this again, a lesson from NC Wit. when men would show up at the gender equity problem, in, uh, in computer science, the implication of what they said at best, what they said was often neutral and usually it was harmful. And it was often interpreted as either women are the problem or now that I'm here, I'll fix the problem of gender equity in tech, both of which were hugely offensive and not helpful versus I'm gonna show up and my goal here is to be an advocate, to be an ally, to help um, women change the dynamics of what's going on with this. And I'm going to be an active participant in that, but as support of the women who are the ones that are now in power, I'm going to put myself in a one down position around this issue. That's very hard for people who are trying to hold on to their position of incumbent leadership to do. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's kind of mediocre. Last comment sidestep of this, there are words in technology that I think should be eliminated, entrepreneurship, I should say, that should just be eliminated from the lexicon. I think they're just, they're, they're just, they're, they're all misdirection words. One I've been hearing since I was young, a uh, young entrepreneur is that entrepreneurship is a meritocracy and it's utter bullshit. 
uh, entrepreneurship's not a meritocracy. Technology is not a meritocracy. And that's just an example of sort of the misdirection, deflection of what's really going on. Another word that gets used a lot is disruption. You're a disruptor. You, you know, you had your, your weekly Nietzsche book. You mentioned earlier, Brad, that you thought the publishing industry needed a bit of a jog, needed to change some <laughs> disruption. How would you change that briefly? Because there's some other things I want to get on, and I know I don't have all day with you. Yeah, I, look, the, techn- the publishing industry is in the midst of a massive disruption and, and, and the biggest disruption. For the last 500 years, right? Not much yeah. seems to have changed. Well, nothing's changed for the last 500 years until the last 10 years where Amazon has completely changed um, elements of the publishing industry. And I think if the next couple of moves that Amazon is trying to do from where I sit play out, um, uh, there will be uh, an entirely different uh, set of disruptions that occur. But, you know, if you look at that uh, and you look at any the inside out of any traditional publisher and and you see where they're still making money and where they're still trying to have businesses, um, and many of them still are, you know, large businesses that are very profitable, um, the value to dollar that those companies are providing to the content generator, which is the author, um, yeah, is decreasing dramatically. And as a result of that, um, again, think about it takes a long time and then it hits a tipping point. I keep waiting for the publishing industry to realize or to decide that part of their role is the same part of their role that used to exist, uh, which is helping authors, especially new authors, um, become successful and visible as part of the economic positive feedback economic model in the long term. And, you know, my own view of what's evolving in a, from the publishing perspective is this optimization around uh, doing less and less for the author while still maintaining the same kind of ratio of dollars uh, on an absolute basis that the publisher is taking. There's a bunch of other things in terms of, you know, technology and the investment in technology. You know, if it we're sitting in 2022, you'd think, you know, as somebody who's written uh, a bunch of books, including several that have been very financially successful for a publisher, I'd have a real-time dashboard every day uh, that shows, you know, where my books were selling and how many were selling to whom and what channels and what ways and how much money I was getting versus twice a year, I'd get a, 150 page PDF that's undecipherable um, that, you know, there's a bottom line number of what my royalty payment is, but like knowing how, what any of that means is complete, you know, like it's impossible. Like there, there, there's 50 things like that, that if the publishing industry was evolving rapidly versus setting themselves up to be completely disrupted um, would have changed. And I, you know, I'm not going to be a, I, I don't like to prognosticate like what's going to happen 10 years from now. I don't really have any idea. Hopefully I'm still alive 10 years from now because I'm enjoying being alive, notwithstanding all the, all the messed up stuff in the world. Um, but I don't, I don't really have any clear idea um, whether or not um, uh, things change radically um, uh, in terms of how the publishing industry works or whether the publishing industry disappears in its current form like so many other industries uh have disappeared over time got a few minutes left uh brad uh, you had a, a nice piece your last blog post about 
uh, some areas of the innovation economy. You seem down on crypto. Is it a Ponzi scheme? Is it something that people shouldn't take seriously? There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal today showing a real guy who seemed to look like a loser anyway. He's one of the quote-unquote true believers still holding on. Is crypto a scam, Brad? I, I I think you have to separate crypto into three categories. Um, uh, you know, crypto as a financial instrument, um, blockchain as a fundamental technology, and then this thing that has this label now called Web3, uh, which tries to wrap around a bunch of those things, but I think is a, a separate thing yet again. Um, I think the first category, crypto as a financial instrument, um, the vast majority of what exists today uh, is a Ponzi scheme. And uh, there are there are corners of it and aspects of it where there's real real um, value potential in terms of what it does. But if you look at the vast majority of the transactional activity, it's between people buying and selling, uh, you know, individual coins at different prices where the where the original coins or tokens or whatever you want to label them as were created out of a thin air and the creators generated for themselves a huge amount. And, you know, as you start thinking about what the definition of a, of a Ponzi scheme, as long as there's people that are willing to buy at a higher price and there's people that are willing to sell at that higher price, you know, you're fine for a long time. If, if crypto as a, as a technology was creating intrinsic value somewhere in our society, um, it, you know, th then that goes away. The, the challenge today is, uh, you know, really uh, the transactional activity around anything in crypto uh, is mostly either uh, illegal activity or um, getting access to networks. And, it, you know, there's a, a, an absurd extension of how it plays out. And there's lots of good examples of, you know, where somebody says, well, this looks like it's actually got some intrinsic value. Um, one of my favorite ones recently was um, a company that raised a bunch of money and got very popular and had a bunch of articles where you got paid for uh, for the number of steps you took each day and in uh, and, and their coin. And, uh, you know, as a venture back company, it was created. And of course, the investors all have tons of coins and the founders have tons of coins as part of the startup and the company does. But then people earn coins by uh, by by uh, taking steps each day. Now, I was an early investor in Fitbit, so. I had my own share of obsession about taking a bunch of steps each day. Um, but in relatively short order, um, that company now, uh, what's happened is that, you know, you have to buy in to be able to earn steps because you have to buy virtual sneakers. And those virtual sneakers have a price of real money. And then the amount of money or value you earn from the steps has decayed. And all of a sudden, like your ability to actually earn any money uh, you know, is, is negative because of your buy-in. And is that intrinsic value? Somebody says, well, there's social value because people are taking steps and they're walking and they're getting paid for it. But if you sort of step back from it, you can see how, you know, that, that really isn't sustainable intrinsic value. Um, there's a bunch of public stuff about all the entertainment uh, and, and, and some of the challenges around that. Second category, blockchain, th there's real stuff in the under underlying fundamental technology um, but there's also real challenges in that technology, and some of it is starting to mature with the innovation that's coming out of, in a lot of cases, people trying to make the crypto activity uh, less useless and actually, again, more fundamentally useful. And then the third category, Web 3.0, 
uh, I think is a good example of the tech industry, once again, creating a label sort of at the extreme part of the hype cycle, well before the underlying technology is mature enough to be productive. And I, I lived through this at the very beginning of, of the internet. Um, and I was part of this at the very beginning of the commercial internet in the 1990s, where, you know, we, we had uh, and funded and created a number of things where if you looked at them and said, you know, in the future, this is going to be amazing. But at the time, they just didn't have, you know, the software wasn't there. The telecommunications wasn't there. The users weren't there. There was lots of security issues, uh, scaling problems, all this kind of thing. And in the end, many of the startups that got created between 1998, 99 and 2001, you know, uh, a good friend of mine, Jerry Colonna, uh, uh, would say, you know, after the bubble crashed and all those companies failed and a lot enormous amounts of money was lost, uh, we looking backwards, we say, you know, we're just 10 years too early. You know, most of that stuff actually became really interesting and really powerful constructs, but it took more maturity of the technology versus the hype of this is what the next wave is going to be. So it's all timing. Uh, finally, um, Brad, you're a uh, you're a partner at the Foundry, which is in the business, quite literally, of building the future, of building things. It's all about timing. Uh, we could talk a lot about a lot of different subjects, a lot of di- different sectors. But thinking about this 10-year time frame, what are you most excited about the future uh, from what you see second, uh, at Foundry? And secondly, what are you most worried about in yeah. terms of the tech future? What scares you most and what excites you most? Well, uh, let me start with uh, let me start with scares me most. Um, I think we have, uh, and, and I think this is a common, you know, sort of refrain that that a lot of people are trying to sort through right now. Um, I, I think there are so many negative second order effects of what uh, we've rolled out with technology in the last uh, you know decade ish, um, not just around social networking, but around many, many, many different aspects of how people use technology to interact and communicate. Uh, there's a lot of primary benefits. Like this would be an example, right? I can sit in my backyard in Aspen and have a conversation with you. Um, and then, you know, presumably there's, you know, the content from that, the corresponding very negative uh, elements uh, in terms of uh, how that impacts our society, um, how information uh, is immediate. Um, and so there are no filters on information, which allows um, uh, 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 either fictional or just plain wrong uh, information to become uh, continually, uh, I'll use the word weaponized because it's an easy one for people to latch onto, but just, you know, used in a way that's not healthy uh, for, for society and for us as a species. That dimension, the second order effects, I don't think we've really uncovered the beginning of those second order effects yet. Um, and, and that's what's most uncomfortable to me is how those uh, both the denial that those second order effects are here and people actively trying to uh, both understand them and and deal with them in a way that's productive and preserves the value of a lot of this activity without uh, reinforcing the negative. The optimistic uh, piece of me is a, kind of a reflection of that. I think the way that we interact with technology a decade from now will be radically different than how we interact with it today. And I believe that my entire uh, adult life as somebody who's been an entrepreneur or investor is that, you know, there the arcs, and I, I like to use a 20-year arc instead of a 10-year arc, because a lot of people, you know, try to make an argument about how 10 years isn't long enough. But 
you know, when I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid fifties, hopefully I'm around when I'm in my mid seventies. I think when I'm sitting around in my mid seventies, um, uh, the ways we use technology as a species and the way we interact with it and interact with each other will be unrecognizable to me, you know, today, if I teleported 20 years in the future, frankly, in the same way that if you took somebody and took them back 20 years and then took them back 20 years, like maybe science fiction would get you there, but you know, I got to say, yeah, I mean, if you went back to 2002, no Twitter, no Facebook, no social media. So no iPhone. Yeah. Right. And we had video conferencing, but nobody used video. Con you, if you said to somebody in 2002, look, the world's going to be shut down for 60 days. Nobody's going to be able to leave their house and it's going to keep just functioning. You know, it's going to be a mess, but it's going to function pretty reasonably um, because everybody's going to learn how to quickly run their um, their office based businesses and their distributed based businesses via video conferencing. That person in 2002 would be, are you out of your mind? The whole world's going to end. And yeah, of course we took it or, or many of us took it almost as. Um natural brad finally um congratulations again on the second edition of the book i think it's as energetic and entertaining and fun as as, as brad failed in person startup boards i strongly suggest it certainly for entrepreneurs who, who 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 are contemplating having a board or are rethinking their boards it's a must read what else are you reading brad hopefully not too much tech i'm sure you're a, a literature guy aren't you yeah i i i read way more science fiction than i read tech um, uh, so I'll just give a couple of quick hits, uh, for people out there. If you're into, if you're into entrepreneurship, the 1980s and 1990s and video games tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow is awesome. Uh, if you, uh, Who's that guy? uh, I, you know, I don't know the author. Um, I'd have to look it up and I can, it's all on my Goodreads, uh, my Goodreads page after, which if you want to put in the show notes, you can, um, another one, which. Uh, the author, I do know of this one, Blake Crouch, uh, just wrote a book, came out with a book called Upgrade. Uh, he's a Colorado-based author who's written some wonderful books. Dark Matter is, is his first sort of breakthrough book. I guess this is his third mainstream sci-fi book, Dynamite. And the authors, I'm, I'm not going to get their, their name right. Another one uh, that I just loved that I read relatively recently uh, was The Immortal King Rao, R-A-O. Uh, and um, uh, conflates a bunch of different challenges. And then I'll end with Kim Stanley Robinson, who's one of my favorite writers. Yeah. She's got a book called um, The Ministry for Tomorrow. Sorry, The Ministry for the Future. Spectacular. Yeah, that, that book and that author gets so many recommendations.